Hey everyone, I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, episode 104. Today's guest is Donald Robertson. Donald Robertson is a cognitive behavioral therapist and the best-selling author of multiple books, including one of my all-time favorite, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. Donald discusses Stoic philosophy. We discuss the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, and his amazing journal, which made it to the present day, 2,000 years later, called The Meditations, and why that journal is more relevant today than ever. Was so excited to get Donald on the show. One of the great things about having this podcast is the ability to reach out and have discussions with people whose work you've admired from afar and to have long-form conversations like this to discuss topics like philosophy and how to live a better life. Donald was gracious. We spoke for almost two hours. What I'm going to do is break this into two parts. Part one is on Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, and the meditations. I'm going to drop part two next week where Donald gives us great stories and wisdom from Seneca, Epictetus, and other philosophers. It is a fun conversation with a ton of ancient wisdom that is so relevant in the present day. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy part one of my conversation with Donald Robertson, best-selling author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And remember... Life is built, not born. Donald Robertson, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to it. Donald, it is such an honor to have you on. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, mm -hmm. who are you and what do you do? Who am I? I'm a Scottish I'm Canadian. I'm a naturalized Canadian citizen. So I'm speaking to you from Montreal today, which is my uh, home. And I'm a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist um, and an author. And I write books about ancient philosophy, particularly Stoic philosophy, and its relationship with modern evidence-based clinical practice and psychotherapy or you know, self-help and stuff like that. Just a huge fan of your work, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, one of my favorite books of all time, probably read it three times. What do you think about mm -hmm. getting into Stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, your book? Maybe we could talk about Epictetus, a little bit of Seneca. I got some questions about the book and Stoicism. I have about 102 podcasts so far. This uh -huh. is my first one on Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism. Uh -huh. So I wanted to introduce my audience to- Awesome. To your work and just stoicism in general. Does that make sense? Yeah, you can ask me anything you want. Where did you grow up? Where I grew up was in Scotland, in Ayr, on the west coast of Scotland, near Glasgow. Donald, I find 10 to 12 years old, like a very formative time in people's lives. And I also mm -hmm. find the dinner table, like a microcosm of their life at that moment. When you think back to 10, 12 years old, what was the dinner table like for you? Could you describe the scene? Who was there? What, uh, what was going on? Um, well, uh, 
my mother and my father, my sister, like who's a bit a uh, bit older than me. My sister left high school the year that I started high school, um, so she was a little bit older than me. And um, yeah, we lived in a, a council house in NAR. Um, we had a dog, and uh, my father was a Freemason. Uh, he worked in building sites, and uh, but my father became ill and he passed away probably a few years after that. He was ill for a long time, I think over a year, and then uh, he got cancer, he got lung cancer, and he passed away when I was about 15 years old. And so it was quite that became subsequently quite a dark period in my life, and I kind of dropped out of school and I thought that I wasn't really going anywhere and around about 15, 16 I discovered philosophy and that became something that gave me a sense of purpose and it helped me to turn my life around I would say. Thank you for sharing that. Donald, if someone asked the 18-year-old version of Donald Robertson what he wanted Uh to be when he grew up, what do you think the 18-year-old version Uh of you would have said? Well I know because I can remember, he would have said that he wanted to be, um, I think I wanted to be like a psychoanalyst like Sigmund Freud. Um, I didn't really, at that time, I don't think I realized there were different types of psychotherapy. I'd only read about Freud and Jung and those guys, so I wanted to do what they did. And I think I wanted to be a philosopher as well. Uh, I'd been reading the the classics and, uh, and that, right about that time, how old was that? Probably about when I was 19, I think it was, I went to university and began doing a degree in philosophy. So let's get into it. I would love to get into, A, your work. First off, your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, one of my favorite books of all time, opened my eyes to Stoic philosophy. I just love how it brings like history philosophy and psychology all together. Like it kind of has like those three, when you put yeah. those three together, I am hooked. And it's almost like you're a better person after you read that book, because you know more about the world, what came before you, reasons why you do things and just better ways to live your life. So we can get in that book. But before we do, uh-huh. I'd like to start back at bigger picture. Uh-huh. Stoic philosophy has definitely made a resurgence over the last couple yeah. of years. If you could describe to our audience, what is Stoic philosophy and why should they know about it? I usually give kind of two answers to that. So one is just for a bit of historical context. So Stoicism is an ancient Greek school of philosophy. It was founded in 301 BC by uh, not a Greek, but a Phoenician merchant who was shipwrecked uh, Athens. And he founded his school of philosophy there after studying philosophy for many years. And it flourished for about 500 years. It's a pretty long time. We don't have much except fragments from the founders of the Stoic school, but we have books from three famous Roman Stoics who came later, and they are Seneca, Epictetus, and the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, is the one that people are probably most familiar with today. Those are who the Stoics are. And a kind of honourable mention goes to Socrates, who is a precursor of the Stoics and greatly influenced them, and also Cicero, who was not a Stoic, um, he was a follower of Plato, but he was a very well-educated man. He was a famous Roman orator and consul, and he wrote a number of books about Stoicism. So he's, Cicero is also one of our main sources for knowing about Stoicism. So what did they believe and what did they do? 
Um, the Stoics' fundamental belief, they had a big complex philosophy that evolved over centuries, but the central doctrine of Stoicism is that virtue is the only true good. Um, arity, I would translate it actually as moral wisdom would be a better translation, I think, is the only truly good thing in life. They get this idea from Socrates. And that really means that the things that appear good or appear really important to most people, like wealth, property, reputation, are not the most important thing in life. Um, and in fact, they are relatively trivial or secondary importance in the grand scheme of things. What's more important is your character, um, your moral character and your possession of insight, moral wisdom. So it's a moral philosophy first and foremost, but you'll quickly spot it has a whopping great big psychological consequence because if someone believed that the most important thing in life was their character and that wealth and reputation were of secondary importance, that person, if they lost all their money or lost their reputation, would be, you would think, less upset about it. So they would have what we call today psychological or emotional resilience in the face of misfortune. So Stoicism is a moral philosophy that clearly leads to greater emotional resilience. That's the, that's the essence of it, I would say. When I think of Stoicism, one of the mm -hmm. things I think of, if someone asked me to define it in a sentence or two, it would be, uh -huh. it doesn't matter what happens to you, it matters uh -huh. how you respond to what happens to you. Basically, yeah. Yeah. And it's all right to have a feeling like something happened, maybe you got uh, almost in a car accident and you got uh -huh. scared, or maybe back in the day you'd get in a shipwreck yeah. and you got scared and it's fine to lose the color in your face or like, yeah. like get upset, feel that visceral feeling, but then your response is how, yeah. where the stoicism comes in. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah. So you're, you're leading actually to a very important point, maybe the most important one to mention at the beginning, which is what is the most common misconception about stoicism? And the most common misconception about it comes from the fact that ancient Greek words for philosophy often became caricatured or distorted over the intervening two and a half thousand years. So what the ancient Greeks meant by Epicureanism, sophistry, scepticism, cynicism, like, is different from what we use those words to mean today. We have a kind of distorted or watered-down understanding of what they mean. And also Stoicism. So when people say Stoicism today, they often mean being having a stiff upper lip. Or if I wanted to define it more psychologically, because it's an important construct in psychology, this we spell with a lowercase s when we're talking about the crude modern concept. Mm -hmm. um, so it would mean uh, a personality trait that consists in suppressing or concealing unpleasant or embarrassing emotions or having a stiff upper lip, a kind of unemotional uh, mm -hmm. coping style. And that is not the same thing as ancient Stoicism. Ancient Stoicism had actually a very nuanced theory of emotion. And as you mentioned, the ancient Stoics would distinguish between involuntary and voluntary aspects of our emotion. And so they would say there are involuntary uh, emotional responses. Like if someone runs up behind you and yells boo, your heart rate shoots up, 
you get a burst of adrenaline, a kind of anxiety feeling. The Stoics would say that's involuntary. It's, it's a reflex. It's We call it the startle response, a startle reflex. Um, if you're in a ship and it's sinking, as you mentioned, like there'd be a natural uh, anxiety that you'd experience in that situation. We we share those instincts or reflexes to a large extent with animals. And the Stoics would say we should accept those feelings as natural, in a sense, inevitable. But what we should take more control over is what happens next, how we then respond, whether we ruminate about those feelings morbidly, whether we have revenge fantasies about people that have upset us, whether we worry pathologically about what if this happens, what if that happens in the future. So one of the most basic insights we could ever have into the nature of emotion would be to distinguish between different types of emotion, the bits that we can control and the bits that we can't really control, at least not we can't control directly. And the Stoics had this subtle, nuanced view of emotion that led to a kind of psychological therapy that they developed. Whereas when people talk about Stoicism in the modern sense, they have a very crude, simplistic understanding of emotion. And they think anxiety and fear, for example, are, are emotions that you should just try and block out mm-hmm. or suppress. And the reason it's really important to distinguish these is there's a body of research literature in psychology and in health research that generally shows that lowercase stoicism, the unemotional coping style, is unhealthy, particularly over the longer term. Mm-hmm. Whereas capitalist stoicism is the philosophical inspiration for cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, the leading evidence-based form of psychotherapy. So lowercase stoicism is bad for your mental health. Mm-hmm. Capitalist stoicism, the ancient philosophy, is good for your mental health. So we really wouldn't want to confuse these two things. And yet the internet is awash with people who confuse these two things, basically. The big, huge social media influencers um, that get these two concepts mixed up. So I think at the beginning, it's important to address that misconception. Ancient Stoic philosophy isn't about just blocking or suppressing unpleasant feelings. It's about understanding how your emotions work, understanding how our beliefs shape our emotions and responding to them in a more healthy, adaptive and philosophical way. So just to recap what you're saying there, one of the biggest current misconceptions is lowercase stoicism, uppercase. Lowercase stoicism is, and I hear that sometimes when someone sees me talking about it or speaking about it or see that a book that I'm reading, they'll say, I could never do that. I'm too emotional. I'm Italian. I'm Greek. I got too much energy. I, I have so much emotion. Like, I have so much passion. I can't be stoic. To me, that's uh-huh. when you need it because you have these strong visceral emotions uh-huh. where you're not ignoring, like you said, the capital S, you're feeling the emotions, you're acknowledging that they're there, but you're uh-huh. saying, but you're, you're channeling them in a more positive direction where you're not being controlled yeah. by your emotions, right? You're not being controlled. You're, yeah. you're kind of, you feel it. You understand it and you're working through it in a positive way and not being run by your emotions. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And and I'd add something important to that as well, which is that what allows us to control our emotions to some extent is the the central principle of cognitive psychotherapy, which is that uh, we normally think of reason and the emotions as two separate things, right? So people think of, uh, of reason and emotion as separate faculties in the mind. And the Stoics said they're wrong about that, that they're mistaken, and that reason and emotion are intertwined, they're inseparable. 
And cognitive therapy, likewise, because it's influenced by stoicism, has what we call cognitive theory of emotion. And it says that when you're angry, it's because you're having angry thoughts and you have angry beliefs, like that you believe that someone has transgressed uh, or violated a rule and they deserve to be punished. Like when you're anxious, it's because you have anxious thoughts and beliefs because you believe something awful is about to happen and you won't be able to do anything to prevent it. Like there are beliefs that underlie shape cause or emotions and that revelation that epiphany like is what allows us to have more control over our emotions so if you're anxious rather than just trying to kind of grit your teeth and suppress the anxiety uh the stoic approach would be to go why am i anxious what are the beliefs what is it that i believe is going to happen is it as bad as I believe that it's going to be. Maybe I believe it's going to be catastrophic, but in reality, it's going to be bad, but not that bad. Maybe it's not as likely to happen as I believe. Maybe I believe, you know, I'm definitely going to lose my job, but in reality, there's like a 1% chance that that would happen. I'm dwelling on it disproportionately. Maybe I underestimate my ability to cope, even if it did happen. So I may be mistaken about my coping ability as well. And so once we recognize that our beliefs shape our emotions, it it changes everything dramatically because those beliefs might be wrong or they might be exaggerated or they might be leaving other information out. They might be selective. And so that's what we do in cognitive therapy is that we question people's beliefs. And so someone that lowercase stoicism usually doesn't recognize the role of cognition or belief and mm-hmm. shaping our emotions. So somebody who low-key stoic gets angry, they just think, I just have to kind of block this out. I have to go and get a cold shower or I have to kind of, you know, try and deal with it like that rather than asking themselves, why am I angry? You know, what what are the beliefs that I'm holding or the attitudes that I'm adopting that are causing me to feel this way in the first place? So in the sense, capitalist stoicism wants us to get to the root cause of our emotions by looking at our underlying beliefs. You mentioned there, uh, the recap, beliefs shape your emotions. So like, I know so many friends that maybe got laid off or left their job and they uh, got laid off from their position and they thought it was the end of the world. And six months later, they have a job making double in a much better environment and they're so much happier and they meet their wife six months later. So your belief of, oh, this is bad. You have no idea what the next step is, right? Like it just- yeah. Now, and, and I mean, I could say many things, but one of them is as a therapist over the years, I've worked with many people who have lost their jobs, and not in every case, but in, in probably in the majority of them, it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to a lot of people. And I think in general, I think many people stay, most people, I believe that most people in the world are in the wrong job. That's a crazy idea. Like the, I think right. the majority of people are probably in the wrong job, and most people kind of stick with their like yep. career they're scared to change and so often that is the best thing to happen to someone that they lose a job because then maybe it gives them an opportunity to to start again to make a better choice maybe to start a business or something and like you said you know what seems like a setback short term might often work out for the best in the long term again most people think it's a catastrophe when their relationship ends so they're boyfriend or girlfriend dumps them it's like i get a big anxiety for a lot of people but the majority of people have multiple relationships in their life so almost everybody has relationships that come to an end Mm -hmm. and 
years later when you look back, you know, you're probably going to think that if that relationship hadn't ended, you wouldn't have gone on and had the next relationship or the relationship that you're perhaps currently in. Like, so you have a very different perspective in the future looking back. It doesn't usually seem as catastrophic. And it could be that when you think something is a catastrophe, it might be that you're mistaken because although it's a short-term setback, it's compensated for by the fact that in the long term it might work out better for you. Mm-hmm. Or it might be that you're just exaggerating how bad it is. Or it mm-hmm. might be that it's it's even you know uh, an opportunity for you if you choose to you know if life gives you lemons to make them into lemonade it may be that if you respond in the right way you could actually turn a setback to your advantage and come out of it uh, stronger or better than you would have been otherwise it reminds me of that seneca line and we'll get to him later about we suffer more in imagination than we do in reality if we could you mentioned the big three of stoicism marcus aurelius Uh seneca and epictetus if we could go to Marcus Aurelius and yeah. his meditations, for the listeners that may not be familiar with or may not know who Marcus Aurelius was, so who was Marcus Aurelius? What are the meditations and why do we need to know about them? Some people may have come across Marcus Aurelius, perhaps even without remembering or realizing. So it's a long time ago now. If you cast your mind back 23 years, Joe, there was a movie that came out. It was a big deal called Gladiator yep. with Russell Crowe. And Marcus Aurelius is played by Richard Harris in the first act of that movie. And I mentioned that, although it's 23 years ago, because in the next year or two, Gladiator 2, the sequel, is about to come out. And so people learned about Marcus Aurelius from the movie. And when the new movie comes out, they'll probably hear about Marcus Aurelius again. And they'll learn that Marcus Aurelius, unusually among philosophers, was what I like to refer to as a big deal back in the day, because he was a Roman emperor, and he was emperor of Rome really at the height of its power. He was the last Stoic standing in the sense that he was the last famous Stoic of antiquity, nearly 500 years after the school was founded. And he was famous as a Stoic philosopher. He wrote down a record and a notebook of his reflections and psychological exercises And it it survives today as the meditations. It's one of the most cherished self-help classics or spiritual or philosophical classics of all time. And that's really how we know of of Marcus Aurelius. He's a popular figure because often with ancient philosophers, we don't actually know that much about their lives. Many ancient philosophers, for example, Epictetus, who we'll come to in a moment, we don't know for sure what he looked like. There aren't any statues of him. But there are loads of statues of Marcus Aurelius because he was famous. So the meditations, Marcus Aurelius is is the emperor of Rome. I mean, he is basically a god, a deity. He could do whatever he wants. He's controlling the biggest empire in the history of the world at the time. He basically is writing notes to himself, journaling. He's journaling notes to himself how to be a better person, where he Mm -hmm. could basically take whatever he wants, do whatever he wants with nothing to stop him and not living like he's out in Las Vegas and just partying hard and like a Nero doing anything he wants to do. He is writing notes to himself on how to be a better person, how to be more empathetic, how to yeah. be more patient. How crazy is that from even two, from 2000 years ago? It's pretty crazy. I, I mean, I think if we start off with like a really with, you know, basic steps for, I think for a lot of people who don't know anything about ancient history, like most people don't study ancient history, 
Um, most people probably haven't read the Stoics. So I think initially a lot of people, their first instinct is to assume that all the Roman emperors were like Nero or Caligula, that they were kind of corrupt and decadent individuals. And I think we should start by saying, you know, the if you like, there's good Roman emperors and bad Roman emperors, to put it very simply. Some of them were more autocratic, uh, despotic. Um, they ruled like dictators. They uh, like seemed to only want to be kind of celebrities. They wanted to be worshipped by people. And then there were other Roman emperors that were the opposite, that were surprisingly conscientious, really studious and hardworking. They, they studied, they all worked as uh, magistrates, like they had legal cases, uh, they were military commanders, and they took it really seriously um, and committed their entire lives to it. And Marcus Aurelius was one of the good emperors, like who basically dedicated his whole life to becoming a, a kind of servant of the, the people and was a massive nerd. And if you want to put it that way, he was a very bookish guy. He studied history and philosophy and jurisprudence or, or the law. And he wanted to make sure that he did a good job. He took the responsibility of being a Roman emperor really seriously. And he lived in a very turbulent period. He faced many challenges as emperor of different uh, types of a huge flood that devastated Rome, um, disease, famine, a plague, like a pandemic far more serious in a sense than the pandemic that we've just been through, uh, far more horrifying, actually. Um, I mean, we don't see uh, people dying from COVID usually, but in the Antonine Plague, people were dying in the streets. You know, they were their faces would have been scarred. We believe it was smallpox, you know, so it was very visible, like very confusing uh, time. Marcus lived through that and ruled the empire through it. And several invasions, not just on the eastern frontier, where the Roman provinces were invaded by Parthia, um, but uh, on the northern frontier, uh, the Roman provinces were invaded by the Germanic and Sarmatian tribes. And Rome was nearly overwhelmed by a massive Germanic, uh, so-called barbarian uh, or tribal invasion. And then Marcus had to try and defend the the empire. We'd all be speaking German today, Joe, if it wasn't for Marcus Aurelius, like, because he managed to, in another emperor, have failed in that task and, uh, and Rome might have fallen you know, centuries earlier. Such a turbulent period that he ruled, where if you look at like the emperor before him, Antoninus Pius, who by mm. all, I think I read he was a stand-up yeah. dude, a stand-up guy, like re really yeah. uh, like, like a father figure to Marcus. Mm. Um and if you when you transfer over to Marcus, a plague, right? Smallpox ravaged, invasions from the north, invasions from the east, mm -hmm. even to the point where one of his top generals, uh, Cassius, could you speak to that? Like even at that point where uh, one of his generals, yeah. could you speak to that and how and what Marcus' reaction was to that? There was a I forgot that he also had a civil war. Yeah, that he had to face a number of uprisings, and and one of them was a full blown. Civil War, although it didn't last very long. There's a long story there, but one of the things the Romans feared most was civil war, because it could easily fragment the empire. And I actually, I'll take a step back in history. I won't go in, I won't, let's not get lost too much in the weeds, but one thing I'd mention is that 
Marcus Aurelius seems to have pursued a meritocratic policy. So he promoted people. Normally in Rome, if you wanted a top job, then you had to come from a good family. You to be a general, you'd have to be an aristocrat, basically. You know, and if you came from a wealthy aristocratic family, you'd expect to be made a general or put in charge of a province or, you know, given some other like senior position in the in government and the empire. And Marcus promoted people that came from humble, relatively humble origins. I, the best example, and there are many, is that he had two senior generals in the northern frontier. One of them was his son-in-law, Pompeianus, and the other one was Pompeianus's friend, the guy called Pertinax. And Pertinax was the son of a freed slave. So Pertinax's father used to be a slave, and he rose to become one of the most senior generals. He's depicted standing alongside Marcus Aurelius on uh, a frieze called the Aurelian Column and a, and a statue. After Commodus, or Commodus, Marcus's son died, uh, he was succeeded briefly by Pertinax. So at one point, the Roman emperor was a guy whose father had been a slave. He was the son of a slave. Pertinax rose all the way to become Roman emperor. Um, I mean, that that's not something I think that we could even necessarily imagine in modern-day America. Like, you know, that that transition from the bottom of society to the very top of society. And he was able to do that because Marcus Aurelius had promoted him and given him that opportunity. Now, you might think, hang on, what's this got to do with the Civil War? I think it caused the Civil War, is my opinion. We don't know for sure. But um, I think Avidius Cassius, who was Marcus's most senior general in the east of the empire, um, was angry that these guys were being promoted. Uh, Avidius Cassius was the opposite. He was an aristocrat. He was actually a descendant of King Herod the Great, you know, Herod in the Bible. He was also a distant descendant of Augustus, the founder of the Roman Empire. This guy had blue blood, but he was destined to be a, a, a king. He was Syrian by birth, the senior general uh, in the East. And I think he, this blue-blooded character, was insulted and angry that Marcus was promoting men of humble origin particularly Pompeianus, who I mentioned earlier, was also Syrian, but he came from humbler stock. And Marcus invited him, we're told, to become Caesar, but he, he refused. He declined. He's a little bit like the character Maximus mm -hmm. uh, that Russell Crowe plays Pompeianus in. He married Marcus Aurelius' daughter. Um, and so he was almost in line to the, the throne this guy Pompeianus. And I think Cassius must have looked at him and thought, he's my fellow countryman. We're both Syrian generals, mm -hmm. but I'm of regal stock, and this guy's a nobody. And Marcus has just promoted him above me mm -hmm. like, and had him marry his daughter. So I think Cassius was uh, angry about that, and so he instigated uh, a civil war against Marcus Aurelius. Um, but he was assassinated by his own officers, and it ended without really without coming the armies coming to blows as far as we're aware. Wow. Now thank you for sharing that. You're talking about all the strife that Marcus faced as emperor. He had 
roughly 12 kids. And could you speak to how many of his children died uh, before adulthood? You're close. Like he had, we believe, about 14 kids. And as far as we're aware, we're not 100% certain about like uh, his all of his children, but we believe about seven of them died before he did. So high infant mortality isn't unusual in the ancient world, and large families weren't unusual. But that he had, even by Roman standards, a pretty uh, big family, a lot of children. I mean, his wife must have been pregnant, uh, like most of uh, for most of their marriage. Like half of his children uh, died before him. He he watched many of his closest friends die. His adoptive brother, who ruled alongside him as co-emperor. So something that might confuse people as well is the whole concept of Roman emperor is a bit confusing, actually. It's not really quite like what we mean by an emperor today. The Roman emperor was a position that was made up of a number of powers and titles, and they could some of them could be shared and some of them could be kind of separated. Um, so it's not quite how we envisage an emperor today. But uh, And it might surprise people to know that you could have two emperors like who ruled jointly. And so Marcus had his adoptive brother, Lucius Verus, appointed as co-emperor. And Lucius was nearly a decade younger than Marcus. He actually, Roman families are complicated. So Lucius is also Marcus's son-in-law, because he, as well as his brother, because he married Marcus's daughter. And I think many people viewed Lucius as kind of being more like Marcus's son because of the age difference and because he married his daughter and for other reasons. Um, but Lucius Verus, his co-emperor, also died uh, before Marcus. And so that must have been a, a, a big shock uh, to him because uh, he's quite an athletic guy, whereas Marcus was a notoriously sickly guy. And uh, so he was he had to he was bereaved many times uh, in his life, I guess you could put it like that, you know. And I guess that reflects also the fact that we mentioned the plague. Marcus personally lost many people that were close to him. And and then also he saw the Roman Empire itself struggling more and mourning constantly um, because of the impact of this pandemic that they were living through. So it's no surprise that he often contemplates mortality when he's writing his notes to himself. A couple of quotes I wrote down from Meditations. They're almost like reading the Bible sometimes. They're mm -hmm. so powerful. Here's one that sticks out. Be tolerant with others and strict with yourself. Coming from a, an emperor who's in charge of basically the known world at the time, I find that just fascinating that he writes that to remind himself to be tolerant, but more strict with himself. I think we can see the meditation. I mean, if you wanted, to, I called my book How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And, you know, I was kind of like half joking and some people thought it was a like it was a little bit of an odd title but i was also quite serious about it because we literally know how marcus really is thought because he wrote his thoughts down like the meditations verbatim shows what was going on be between his ears like mm -hmm. his, his private record of his thoughts we know exactly how he thought about many things and uh the way he thought is actually surprisingly profound about and we can see the meditations as a kind of manual yeah. that he wrote for himself uh, on coping with warfare and pandemic and the responsibility of, of being an emperor. Although it's also a peculiar book in a number of ways. 
And one is, though it does mention some specific things, is for the most part, it's what I would describe as being artfully vague. So, for instance, the most famous passage in the meditations is the beginning of the second book. So the first book is different stylistically from the rest. It's Marcus reflecting on his uh, family members and his tutors. So when the the book, so that can be viewed as a kind of um, preface. So the book really begins in passage 2.1, or the main part begins in 2.1. And he says, every morning when you wake up, tell yourself that you're going to meet treacherous, deceitful, hypocritical, meddlesome individuals. And then he goes on to talk about how he would cope with that. He doesn't say, though, every morning when you wake up, tell yourself that you're going to meet that annoying senator uh, called such and such, or you're going to have to deal with your mother-in-law, or your your kids are going to be kicking up uh, a fuss again, or you're going to have to deal with the envoys um, from uh, Sarmatia or anything like that. So it's vague. He doesn't say who he's talking about. And because he doesn't say that, that's part of its popularity because you and I can read that and think um, that reminds me of the the guy that works in my office mm-hmm. or it reminds me of my brother-in-law or it reminds me and we can project ourselves mm-hmm. into the meditations because he leaves out specifics for some reason in in most of the passages um and i i think actually we have to it takes an effort to try and imagine it back in its historical context i had to do that when i was writing his biography and writing a graphic novel called verismus about him so i had to undo that artful vagueness and think who could he be talking about mm-hmm. in these passages in that passage he probably is Talking mainly about foreign envoys and uh, and maybe senators. Every morning, Roman statesmen would hold formal meetings um, where it was part of the daily routine. Would begin by receiving guests in the morning um, who would petition them, mm-hmm. and particularly the the emperor. Um, and so we, it doesn't occur to us. We just think, oh, he's just talking about waking up in the morning. No, he would go through a formal process every morning where he would meet um, people that would be pre- presenting him with uh, requests on behalf of different countries and so on. So that's probably what he's mainly thinking about in that passage, although you wouldn't guess that uh, mm-hmm. just by reading the meditations because he, he, you know, it's good in a way that he leaves that information out and allows us to imagine ourselves in his shoes. It's amazing how it's so applicable to to today. We're written 2,000 years ago. It's written in a way where it's almost like a self-help book. Another quote that hits me is, think of yourself as dead, and then whatever's left of your life, live it properly. Almost like you're resuscitated. Picture from this moment backwards, you died. Mm-hmm. You got resuscitated. And then this point forward is bonus. Basically, go out and live your best life, live it properly. Like carpe diem kind of thing. There, there are many passages in the meditations like that. It's clearly an important exercise. In fact, there's bits where he specifically says that he practices imagining this every day. Uh, I think Marcus's work is very relevant today. I wanted to say as well, a bit of trivia. It's you know, things that exist today didn't all exist in the past, obviously. And certain types of writing that we have today just didn't really exist or weren't common in the past. One of them is the novel. People say uh, Cervantes, Don Quixote, 
um, is the first real modern novel. And uh, and essays, you know, didn't really exist in the same form in the past. Michel de Montaigne and Francis Bacon were the kind of pioneers of the modern essay form. So a lot of types of writing, genres of writing, didn't really exist in the past. But one of the oldest genres of writing that does exist all the way back into antiquity is arguably self-help. Like self-help and self-improvement literature was a thing that existed in ancient Greece and Rome. And so here we have, you could say a journal, except that it's not, there's no indication of chronology in this. Um, but certainly a notebook like uh, that Marcus is writing that contains self-improvement advice. And not only that, but other Stoics write self-improvement uh, essays or letters that were meant for other people, specific individuals, almost like they were taking on the mantle of a therapist or a life coach and giving mm -hmm. other people advice, particularly how to cope with bereavement. Mm -hmm. Like the Stoics wrote a genre of, of letters that are called uh, consolation letters that were designed to help people cope emotionally with the impact of bereavement. That's like being a coach or a counsellor or a therapist today. These things existed in the ancient world. They had psychotherapy. People think psychotherapy is a modern phenomenon, but uh, they talk about therapy of the psyche pretty frequently in ancient philosophy, and there were whole books dedicated to it. There's a book called on therapeutics that was written by Chrysippus, the third head of the, the Stoic school, which is lost today, but is very influential in the ancient world. Marcus Aurelius had a very famous physician called Galen. He wasn't a Stoic. He was an eclectic thinker, but he'd read Chrysippus and Zeno and the founders of Stoicism. He wrote a book called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions, which is clearly a book on psychological therapy. And we have an entire book by Seneca, that survives today called On Anger, which mm -hmm. is basically a book on the stoic psychotherapy of anger. So self-help, self-improvement and psychotherapy, all that kind of stuff that we often think of as, in a sense, modern, characteristically modern phenomena existed uh, in the ancient world. Wow, that's phenomenal. A couple more questions about Marcus Aurelius. Maybe we'll move on to Seneca. How did the meditations written close to 2,000 years ago how did it survive to the modern era? I have photo books from college I lost. A couple of, like, I don't know where they are. So, like, how did the meditations make it from the northern frontier where he's writing it versus the Germanic tribes? How does it make it to the modern day? The short answer is we don't really know. And it's, you know, most books, only a, less than 1% of ancient books survived today. Many were lost. Some were preserved by other cultures, like Arabic uh, scholars translated many Greek texts into Arabic, and they were preserved for that reason. Marcus's meditations, um, we have vague references to parts of it from ancient authors centuries later. We don't really know how it survived, because it looks, we're pretty certain it wasn't intended for publication. And the funny thing is, Marcus's son, uh, Commodus was not a philosopher and so I mean what you haven't said but you might imagine particularly if you watch the movie which isn't the movie's not historically accurate but you get the gist that Commodus was quite a kind of corrupt decadent emperor I don't think he inherited the meditations I can't imagine that you know he would have been a good person to preserve it Marcus had a son-in-law 
who called Severus, uh, Claudius Severus, who was an Aristotelian philosopher. So I'd like to think maybe, but this is just a shot in the dark, that Marcus may have bequeathed his private notes and letters to his son-in-law, who was, who was uh, uh, known as a philosopher, and maybe he, he preserved it. But we don't really, the text didn't resurface until like the modern era, like um, the it was translated uh, into Latin originally, I believe, and then into English in the 15th century or 16th century, if I remember rightly. And it didn't really become particularly popular until round about the 19th century. Actually, people previously had been reading Seneca more. But then, particularly in the 19th century, the Victorians really took to the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. It kind of resonated with them, and it's the most popular book on Stoicism easily today. There's many translations today. What's your favorite translation of all of them? Oh, that's a hard question. Like, because I read badly, I read like uh, a lot about Greek, so I tend to kind of look at the Greek and compare different translations. I like many translations. I like the George Long translation. It's an old uh, 19th century one. And the most popular modern translation is by Gregory Hayes. Okay. But my favorite translation, I think, is the most recent one, which is by Robin Waterfield, who okay. actually I just interviewed about an hour ago. So oh, really? fresh conversation <laughs> with him. But that the most recent translation is an annotated translation of Marx Aurelius by Robin Waterfield. So it, sometimes I think because there are so many translations, the older ones are all in the public domain. And so the versions of the meditations that people will find online or f- like free or in cheap copies mm-hmm. will often be quite old. And sometimes people say they try to read it and the language seemed a little bit oldie worldy to them and they couldn't relate to it. You're better off if that's the case, if that's how you feel, like people are, are better off than maybe buying. You're having to cough up and buy a more modern translation like Gregory Hayes or Robin Waterfield, um, because like those will be in more contemporary English. That's my little tip to people that are thinking about uh, reading the meditations. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.